Uh, have your Bibles open to Daniel 11, and we will uh, take it in um, chunks today rather than reading out the um, 60-odd verses from Daniel 11, 2 until 12, 3 at once, and, and that will help us, I think, see the picture a little bit better. So... Uh, remember last week, we uh, started this final vision in chapter uh, 10, and chapters 10, 11, and 12 are to be taken as a collective whole. This is the final um, vision that Daniel receives, and Daniel chapter 10 um, is where he receives this vision of this majestic Christ-like figure, um, possibly a heavenly messenger some people believe a pre-incarnate christ um, either way is it, it is a, a majestic vision and in this vision this theme is introduced of the spiritual warfare that lies behind the physical conflict and of course daniel is very much concerned for the physical conflict because um, his whole hometown has been destroyed he's experienced decades in eg- exile And as uh, Cyrus's decree goes out so that they can go back to rebuild Jerusalem, almost immediately they are um, receiving opposition and there's conflict going on as they're trying to rebuild Jerusalem. So uh, the, the curtains are peeled back for Daniel and it's showing how there is actually spiritual warfare that is connected to the physical conflict of the day. And from uh, verse 2 of chapter 11, we have then the details of this physical conflict that uh, God, through his messenger, reveals. It's quite an astounding, astoundingly detailed passage. As, as I mentioned last week, this is where the rubber hits the road um, for liberal scholars or whether you're going to believe that God actually uh, predicts the future because it's quite detailed in um, chapter 11 of what we now know as history, but at the time of Daniel was uh, hundreds of years in the future, starting uh, very soon to the end of the exile, but going forward until the second century BC. So in uh, the first uh, 19 verses of chapter 11, from uh, from verse 2 to verse 20, we have these details of the Persian um, rulers, one after another, to the Greek Empire and then their rulers. And there'll be this common theme that we will see of one ruler rising up, the next moment he's gone, there's another ruler in his place, the next moment he's gone, there's another ruler, there's a whole bunch of conflict and it's all working its way as God's intended plan toward the end. So let's read now from verse two to verse 20 of Daniel chapter 11. This is God's words, Daniel 11, 2 to 20. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority 
with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude, greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. A lot in that passage. It gives incredible detail into, as I said, what we now know as history of the rise and fall of Persian and Greek leaders all the way up until we will see from verse 21 a uh, prominent figure reintroduced, um, Antiochus Epiphanes. So this, uh, these verses here from verse 2 to 20 go over uh, hundreds of years from um, the end of exile. So we're probably in like the um, early 500s or the late 400s, all the way up until about the 160s BC. And the point here isn't so much to see God's ability to know the future. 
that's a given. It's quite ironic that the fascination would be with that when if you believe in a God who created the universe, well, it's not a big thing for him to predict the future. That's easy work. So the point isn't so much to see the detail of the future, nor is the point to get bogged down in all of the historical details, though that is important. Rather, the overarching theme is to see how futile these world rulers and leaders and kingdoms are. To see how quickly one rises and just as quick it falls down. And these are some of the most powerful rulers and authorities uh, that we have witnessed in human history. In verse 3 of chapter 11, we read of this uh, mighty king from the kingdom of Greece, likely Alexander the Great, who rises up. Uh, Alexander the Great conquered the known world before he's 30, arguably one of the greatest military strategists and rulers of his day. And he gets one verse in this, just one verse. And as soon as he's introduced, what do we read in verse four? As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided. One of the greatest rulers of all time. Here he is, oh, he's gone, kingdom divided. Now here's some more rulers who eventually will fall away as well. This is the theme. One ruler rises up the next moment he falls. Out of the demise of Alexander the Great, we know that there were four kings that took his empire. And because he was so young, there was no heir. So when it says here in verse 4, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not his posterity. It's saying that there is no heir for him. So it's just these other rulers that rise up and they take the throne. So we read about the beginning of uh, what we know as the Ptolemaic dynasty from verse 5. And this is the king of the south. So in these verses, whenever we read the king of the south and the king of the north, the king of the south is the area of Egypt, the Ptolemaic empire. And then the king of the north is the Seleucid empire, uh, the area up above Jerusalem. It's basically these areas that are just above Jerusalem or just below Jerusalem. And these are the kings of the south and the kings of the north. And the next several verses, uh, we're not really going to go into detail on, but all the way up to verse 20, simply detail the rise and the fall of these rulers with all of the ongoing conflict that is happening all around uh, Daniel already. And that, of course, will happen continually. Uh, remember chapter 7, the beasts representative of the kingdoms. One rises up, the next moment there is another beast that rises up, then there is another, until finally they are confronted with the Ancient of Days, until finally this indestructible kingdom comes about. So this is demonstrating the utter futility of worldly kingdoms in contrast to the rule of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the kingdom of the God of heaven and earth, which will never be destroyed. Reminder of Psalm 118, uh, verses 8 and 9, which says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. You could just as easily insert anything. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in a career. It's better to trust in the Lord than to even trust in a family. It's better to trust in the Lord than anything. Our hope is in the Lord. So we don't look to a changing government for our salvation or our deliverance. We don't look to a better career. We look to the Lord. The main emphasis throughout the book of Daniel 
is that all things in history are continuing in this rise and fall cycle, which is on an unavoidable collision with the Ancient of Days, with the King of Kings. Every single thing in history is working on this ordained cycle where all of the great dynasties and great rulers of the world will eventually succumb to destruction as they are confronted with the God of heaven and earth. And our hope is entirely in him. Now, from verse 21 of chapter 11, as I mentioned, we uh, are now reintroduced to this familiar figure throughout the story of Daniel, this man who is described as a contemptible person, a despicable person. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. We remember him from chapter 8. He's one of the little horns. There's a lot of little horns in Daniel, sometimes different people. He's the little horn likely of chapter 8. Uh, and he sets himself up against God and his people. And so this section from verse 21 to 35 then details, details all of the events around Antiochus Epiphany. So you can see a bit of a trajectory happening here. The first bit starts off pretty uh, broad details all of these different rulers. Now we're about to enter a section which homes in on one particular ruler against God's people. And then we will see the remainder of it with a different theme, a trajectory that is thrusting us forward until the end. So here in this middle section of verses 21 to 35, we are reintroduced to the events of Antiochus Epiphanes who brought uh, some of the worst persecution and um, destruction to the Jewish people. So let's read through verses 21 to 35 now and see some of these, uh, the way that he is described in a lot of these um, events that happen that center on Antiochus Epiphanes and his uh, persecution of the Jewish people. You'll notice that the word covenant is mentioned quite a number of times, wasn't mentioned at all previously. And yet here, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is this figure who is really opposed to the covenant, to God's covenant. So for verse 21, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. And he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his fathers' fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him." Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed... He shall return and come into the south, 
But it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Ketim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who, who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time." A few things to notice. First of all, notice the word appointed in there. Clearly, these are things that God has ordained, that God has appointed. There is a fixed period that all things in history are working their way toward. It's not like any historical event or any future event is going to happen and God has dropped the ball on it. He has appointed all things. Second thing, notice that Antiochus here from verse 21 is introduced um, as a contemptible person whom royal majesty has not been given. And this is going to be important as we look at the next section from verse 36, where there is the king. So in this passage here, this man is never referred to as a king. In fact, it's like the author goes out of his way to say this man doesn't have royal majesty, though, of course, he became in a, a kingly state, he was a ruler. Uh, but the text here says in verse 21, uh, a person to whom royal majesty has not been given. Royal majesty was not been given to him because Antiochus Epiphanes was not a rightful heir. He was not an heir. He obtained the kingdom by, we read here, flattery, but the word is like slipperiness, deception. Like, um, excuse me if anyone was a used car salesman, it's not against that, but you know how used car salesmen have this sort of connotation of being a bit slippery. Um, this is sort of the idea of the word. He obtains the kingdom by slipperiness, by a combination of deceit and circumstances that lent heavily in his favor. Now, this is the, th the northern uh, throne of the Seleucid Empire. So we've still broken up from Alexander the Great. This is the northern. So Antiochus takes um, the throne of the king of the north, so to speak. But clearly here, he's never referred to as the king of the north. He's just referred to as this contemptible person. From verse 22, we read how he sweeps away armies and he brings destruction. Even the prince of the covenant. This is likely referring to the high priest, the prince of the covenant. We know that Antiochus uh, slaughtered Onias, who was one of the high priests of that time, as he started to increase his persecution against the Jewish people. And then the next several verses from verse 22 to verse 28 just detail some of his interactions with the king of the south, where he's just constantly trying to take over the Ptolemaic Empire and go to war with them and take over Egypt. But in verse 28, it begins to turn toward God's people as we read, he sets himself up against the Holy Covenant. This is the early persecution of Jewish people where Antiochus uh, began to outlaw um, people who, who kept the food laws. If you kept the food laws, you were likely to be killed. If you had a child circumcised, you were likely to be killed. It was basically you had to adopt 
pagan religion or be killed. And that was the situation that was happening. But then in verses 29 to 35, we read of this progression of the real persecution. Um, This occurs after Antiochus tries to take over um, Egypt. But in verse 30, where we read the ships of Katim, that's a reference to Rome, whereas Antiochus tries to take over Egypt, Rome basically comes in and says, hey, if you want to take over Egypt, uh, it's, it's war with us. And Antiochus is humiliated and he heads back to Jerusalem, uh, to his area and through Jerusalem. And he turns all his anger toward the Jewish people back in Jerusalem. We read historical accounts that at this point, as he returns enraged, um, he slaughters about 40,000 people and 40,000 others are made to be slaves. Um, He slaughters uh, women, babies, men. There was no real distinction. The temple is completely desecrated. These are some of the events we read over in chapter 8. The temple is desecrated. This abomination of desolation is set up. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, this contemptible person, becomes for the Jewish people the closest thing to an antichrist, though that's not a term that was used until the New Testament, but really the closest thing to an anti-Messiah, to an antichrist that they have ever had. Someone who is really intentionally trying to take down God's people and to take down the temple and humiliate it and humiliate God and his people. And if we quickly look, if we can just take a, a sidebar on lessons in persecution from verse 32. Notice in verse 32, we read, uh, He will seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We know from historical accounts that Antiochus at this point offered uh, this sort of false prestige to people. If they were to um, adopt Hellenistic pagan religion, he offered uh, much wealth and prestige um, if they were to then become uh, pagan worshippers. And some people, those who violate the covenant we read, may have thought, well, I can still worship Yahweh in my heart. I can still worship Him uh, and just give um, a little bit of pagan religion on the side and really God will understand. These are likely uh, those who violate the covenant. There were people who ended up adopting pagan religion. In contrast to these people, we read, those who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now, I said before, we, we don't really know the type of persecution that may come to us. If, if we learn anything through Daniel and through the book of uh, Revelation and other aspects, we know that there are constant cycles of persecution against God's people. In one part of the world, there might be a revival breaking out. In another part of the world, there are people being slaughtered for their faith in Christ. And that may come to us. And if it does, there's one simple question that we should ask ourselves. Do you know God? Do we know God? Not just know of Him. Do we know God? Do we know Him with such intimacy that the thought of forsaking him literally disgusts us do we know god do we know god in the way paul did where he said i count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord for his sake i consider all things garbage those who do not succumb 
to the seduction and flattery of pagan religion are those who know God. If the God that you know is not worthy for you to lose every single thing, he is not the true God. If the God that you do not that you claim to know is not worthy of you losing everything and still having him, he is not the true God. And you will not stand in persecution. So in the midst of seduction and persecution, these True believers, the ones who know their God, stand firm and they take action. The word for take action is literally they're doers. It's just a verb for doers. We're reminded of James, how he says, be doers of the word. You have the implanted word within you and you are doers of the word. You are active. Discipleship without activity, without doing is false discipleship. Activity like pursuing personal holiness, like testifying of Christ, like seeing a need and being moved with compassion. These are people who are doers of the word. And this is what we see here in this moment of persecution. There are those who know their God, they will stand firm and they will be doers. Now, the final details of the persecution we read in verses 34 to 35 describe some people stumbling and receiving a little help. Um, That could be there was this thing called the Maccabean Revolt, where at that time uh, the Jewish people did actually receive some help. Uh, But there was more persecution to come. In verse 35, we read the wise uh, stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time of the end, for it awaits an appointed time. The stumbling here likely refers to those who lose their lives. Not just stumbling like a, um, a small stumble, but likely that those who actually lose their lives. And we have a similar passage in Revelation chapter 6, where we read of these martyrs. Notice here in Daniel, it's describing these people who stumble. They are refined, purified and made white until the time of the end, for it awaits an appointed time. Now in Revelation 6.10, we have this Um, description of these people who have lost their lives, who have been slain because of the word of God. And we read, they cry out, O sovereign Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? And then they are given a white robe and they are told to rest a little longer. We have a similar picture here in this passage of those who stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the appointed time. And here in Revelation, we have this uh, picture of these people who've been slain for the word of God. They're dressed in white, they're purified, and they are told to rest a little longer, to just wait. So we have this picture here in Daniel of these people who stumble, they were refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end. And now we are beginning to see a bit of a transition. The time of the end, we're being thrust forward in trajectory toward the time of the end. So let's read from verses 36 uh, just to chapter 12, verse 4, and see this figure. There is a figure here introduced. Remember how the the passage we've just gone through, Antiochus and his persecution against the Jewish people, he's not never listed as a king. And then all of a sudden, in verse 36, after we have this 
transition where it's pointing us toward the time of the end, there is this figure called the king. Not the king of the north, not the king of the south, just the king. So let's read here from verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. We're reminded of the themes in chapter 8. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So notice again that we have this figure called the king without any reference to the north or the south. There's a different theme being introduced here. Remember, verse 35 starts to change the trajectory of this toward the time of the end. And this continues in verse 40. We read, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack. Then in chapter 12, verse 1, still the same. So remember, chapter divisions were added in much longer. This was all just one book. Chapter 12, verse 1, at the time, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. So this is still referring to the time of the end. And then at that time, we have these themes of resurrection being introduced. Look at verse two. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to everlasting, to shame and everlasting contempt. So the events that we have here from verses 36 through until the rest of chapter 12 seem to be pointing us to events that go far beyond the persecution of the 2nd century BC for the Jewish people. 
They are pushing us, thrusting us toward the time of the end, toward the final resurrection. And this is part of why chapter 10, remember keeping the context of this, remember how chapter 10 peels back the curtains. Daniel's worried about the conflict that's happening, the physical conflict, and all of a sudden this messenger comes in and shows this spiritual heavenly realm where there is this conflict going on in, in the spiritual realm that is connected to the physical. And this is pointing us to the day where all of the spiritual forces that lie behind the physical conflict will eventually be revealed and judged it's kind of like it's as if we when we get closer to the end right now there are these spiritual forces this spiritual realm that lies behind all of the physical and it's like as we get closer to the end this connection between the physical and the spiritual that we can't really see now i'm sure it would have been awfully confusing for daniel a lot of this is still confusing for us we can't really see the connectedness of the spiritual realm to the physical conflict, but it is there. And it's like as we get closer to the end, the evil one who lies behind all of the physical conflict becomes much more apparent and will eventually be revealed for who he is. There's like this, uh, the closeness becomes more and more evident. We see this in 2 Thessalonians 2, I believe, a passage that we've referred to throughout our time in Daniel. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul is talking about uh, the coming of the Son of Man and this man of lawlessness. So he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. Clearly, this is referring to the end, the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, right? The time of the end. And he says, Paul says, the day of the Lord, so this day when we are gathered together with him, the day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, that sounds awfully similar to some of the descriptions we have in chapter 11, particularly verse 36. Notice, the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. And here in 2 Thessalonians, we have this picture of the man of lawlessness who uh, exalts himself above God, um, taking his place in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So we're clearly seeing some similarities here. And now Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, this man of lawlessness is being restrained. He's being restrained. That doesn't mean he's non-existent. It just means that he doesn't have control. He's being restrained until the time of the end so that he may be revealed. So he's being restrained until finally he is revealed. And Paul says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So though the man of lawlessness is restrained, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's already lawlessness going on. There's already people who oppose themselves against God. There's a spirit of lawlessness, even from the first century. He says, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So God will restrain him until he is out of the way. And then, then the lawless one will be revealed 
whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So there is a lawless one that lies behind all of the lawlessness in our world. And finally, that lawless one will be revealed. It will become clearer. All of the lawlessness in the physical realm will it'll be become much clearer that that is directly attached to the man of lawlessness. And I believe this is what we are seeing here in Daniel 11:12. This trajectory pointing toward that day where the man of lawlessness who lies behind all of uh, the evil and destruction of this day will finally be revealed. The progression of all of the physical conflict will continue until finally the king of darkness who lies behind it all will be revealed and will be judged. And he will follow the same pattern that we have seen in Antiochus Epiphanes, in generals like Titus destroying Jerusalem in AD 70. He will follow the same pattern, but in a much clearer way to basically directly oppose himself against God and his temple, which is interesting when you think about the way the New Testament uses the language of temple to describe we as the body. He will take his seat in the temple in the place of God's presence and he will proclaim himself to be God. And the final end of this king that we read in uh, this section in verses 36 to 45 of Daniel, he will eventually pitch his palatial tent between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. That's in verse 45. Palatial tent, it's a confusing phrase. It's just a a phrase that means uh, like the tent of his palace. Whatever it is, it describes a place of residence. He will He will reside between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. The glorious holy mountain, likely referring to the temple mount in Jerusalem, the place of God's people. So see the picture of this Antichrist figure taking his place from the sea, from the place of fear and chaos. The sea is where all of the beasts arise out of in chapter 7 taking his place between there and the glorious holy mount, the place of God's presence. And yet he will succumb to the wrath of the Almighty on that great day. He will stand before the Ancient of Days. Judgment will be handed down. Paul describes it as uh, the Lord Jesus killing him by the breath of his mouth. It is working toward this final confrontation. And in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 12, we have this picture of Michael, the the angel, the one who delivers Israel. And then all of these uh, people whose names are written in the book. It seems like this has to coincide uh, with the destruction of this figure who exalts himself again. We have these themes of the final resurrection, of books being opened. Uh, Verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This picture of resurrection, our hope, the resurrection, where we will receive glorified bodies, no more sickness, no more sorrow, uninhibited worship of Christ forever and ever. And then Daniel is told in verse 4, to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. It's simply this picture of the fact that nothing more can be added in. God has ordained it. It will come to pass. 
that is it, it's sealed. And finally, just as we draw to a close, the last section here from verses 5 to 13, we're uh, taken back out of the vision. So from uh, verse 5, Daniel looks and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. He's likely back to the place where he is at chapter 10, right at the start of the vision. And then someone said to the man clothed in linen, Notice that takes us all the way back. The only time we have reference of a man clothed in linen is this majestic vision at the start of chapter 10 of this man clothed in linen. Now we are back and Daniel again sees the man clothed in linen. And then someone says to the man clothed in linen, how long shall be to the end of these wonders? Which that's what we all want to know, right? How long until the end? How long until the final end when this is all done? And the man clothed in linen says in verse 7, for a time, times and half a time. Same as chapter 7, verse 25, this period, this half period of completeness, the same as we went over at the end of Daniel chapter 9, this period in Revelation that pops up of 42 months, 1260 days, time, times and half a time, this half period of three and a half years or uh, half completeness. And there is an intentional vagueness to this. And you can see that because look at eight. Uh, look at verse 8. Daniel asks for clarity. I find this hilarious. Like He's saying, well, hang on, help me understand this. More, He says, oh, my Lord, uh, what shall be the outcome of these things? And then I find it funny. Just the answer is, don't worry about it. He doesn't give the answer. He just says, go your way, Daniel. Go about your way. You don't need to know. I've told you everything that you need to know. You don't need to know anymore. The messenger draws him back to the reality that the righteous will understand and endure while the wicked will not. This is the, the final theme. If we can be left with one thing, it is the theme of endurance. When we have all of these pictures of destruction until the end, of this vagueness, the theme is one of endurance. That's what we are called to do. A half period of completeness that we must persevere through this time, times and half a time. The comfort really is that there is a fixed period of persecution. There is a fixed period. It's not like the angel says, oh, I'm not too sure about it. Could be a while. I don't know. No, it's time, times and half a time. There's a fixed period. That's the comfort. And I believe this is the point of these two uh, ridiculously confusing numbers that get brought in right at the end. Daniel uh, leaves us in suspense here from verses 12 and 13. Uh, we read, And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And then, blessed is the one who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. It's a bit confusing. But I believe it's another reminder that the time period is fixed. The time period is fixed. And there's a call for endurance. There is an endurance here. There's 1,290 days. And then blessed is the one who arrives at the 1,335 days. It's a picture of endurance. 
In Revelation 16, just to bring one final theme in there, in Revelation 16, we have this picture of the sixth bowl being poured out. And it's a picture of destruction. It's the Battle of Armageddon that's become popular in, our, in uh, Hollywood. Um, it's this huge battle. And in Revelation 16, the bowl is poured out. And it is this battle. And it's like there is this parenthesis. Literally in the, in the ESV, there's brackets. In the midst of the battle, we have words of Jesus where he comes in and in the midst of all this destruction and all this battle and, and all of this chaos, and Jesus comes in and says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. That's the theme. In all of this destruction, Jesus comes in and says, Hey, I'm coming like a thief. You have no idea. But what I want you to know is that you have to have endurance, you have to persevere, you have to be faithful even unto death because I will come. It's going to come like a thief in the night, but the main thing is the day is fixed, I am coming, I will return. It's the same themes in Matthew 24 of staying awake, being alert. And that's, what hap- that's what's happening here in Daniel. This is this call for endurance. And we endure because of the assurance we have. It's like that theme from Hebrews 12 too. We endure because Christ has run the race. Notice the very end, the angel's final words to Daniel. But go your way to the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Again, an allusion to the same uh, themes we see in verse 12 of uh, many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake in the earth. That's a picture of death and resurrection. The angel says to Daniel, you will rest and then you will stand in your allotted place at the end of days. There is a reservation for you, Daniel, and a reservation for all of those whose name has been written in the book of life. Your name is there. It cannot be taken out. And so we endure. It's, it's, and it's that assurance that we have that makes us endure. I've mentioned this before of uh, watching um, movies or TV shows, and I'm someone that really hates the idea of an emotional roller coaster of not knowing what's happening at the end. So I just Wikipedia the end of it, and then I, I'll be much more comfortable looking through. And I know that's not for everyone watching shows, but I would say uh, it's a terrible way to live your life on an emotional roller coaster, not knowing the end. That's a terrible way to live your life, and we don't have to. The comfort for Daniel is that he will rest and he will stand in his allotted place. His name is written in the book, he knows the end. We know the end. We will stand just like Job. I know that my Redeemer lives and one day I will stand and my eyes, not anyone else's, my eyes will behold him. How we long for that day. That is the fuel for our endurance. We're going to take a moment now just to uh, pause before we take the Lord's table. As we think about these themes of 
um, endurance and our fixed period, the resurrection, obviously the hope of the resurrection comes because of the body and blood of Christ on the cross where he did not hang on the cross. He did not stay in the tomb. He rose again. The tomb is empty. So our hope is in the resurrection. The fact that Jesus has hung on the cross to take our sin upon himself so that we would be dead to sin. We would be cleansed of our sin and we would have our hope entirely in the fact that God the Father looks upon us through Christ the Son and sees perfection because he sees us in Christ. And our ultimate hope is like it says in Colossians 2, our life is hidden with Christ, but soon will be revealed. Our life now is hidden, but in the end, it will be revealed. That final appointment, that final allotment, that final reservation where we will stand before God and we will receive our inheritance. We will receive the fullness of our reward. The cross of Christ is the defining moment of that. Without it, we have no redemption. We have no forgiveness. We have no reconciliation with the Father. With it, we have all that we possibly need.